Genesis 3, 1 through 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Good morning and welcome to the weekly gathering of Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. and I'm so glad to spend time with you this morning, whether you're here in the room with me in our West service, over there in our East service or watching online. Thanks for being with us. I'm glad, glad to get to spend some time with you. And I'm very excited to be introducing to you our new sermon series that's going to carry us through the summer. We're calling it One Story, One Hero, 10 Weeks walking through the story of the Old Testament, 
showing you that one of the most beautiful things about the Bible is that it is one story written by different people across a long period of time, spanning different cultures and time periods and eras, and yet having one story, one message, and then at the center of that story is Jesus, the hero. And not just at the center of the overall larger story, but really at the center of each in particular story, some of which, if you've grown up in church, you'll be very familiar with. And so I'm excited for this summer. I'm excited to spend some time in the Old Testament. I am also really excited about something you're going to hear about later. We're calling the Jesus Storybook Bible Challenge. And I just want you to know when that comes up a little later in the service that uh, as far as I'm concerned, if you know me well, you know I have a lot of books. I, I really like books. And I can't think of another one outside of the Bible that is more helpful in understanding the story of what God has been doing in human history than the Jesus Storybook Bible. So I want to recommend that to you, commend that to you, and hope you will answer the call to take the challenge. Uh, But I am also excited to dive into this week's story. So if you have a Bible, I would love for you to take it out and open it to Genesis chapter 3, fire up your phone, open the Bible app, scroll to Genesis chapter 3. Let me just say... Uh, I am really, really happy to be at a church where it is okay to just sit and listen to the Bible be read for a long period of time. What a wonderful thing to do. I hope you enjoyed that. It was read uh, so well. But it's also great for you to have it in front of you. And so as you're opening it or flipping in your phone, uh, I want to hold out to you my outline that I'm going to use to navigate Genesis 3. Three simple points, and they go like this. I want to talk about the lie, the damage, and the promise. Okay, the lie, the damage, and the promise. All right, let's start with number one, the lie. In order to understand Genesis 3, you really need to understand what happens in Genesis 1 and 2. And I don't want to presume uh, that you have any familiarity with those at all, so if you'll indulge me, let me catch you up. You can consider this previously in the book of Genesis, okay? Here's what has happened so far. Genesis 1 and 2 tell the story of God creating the universe. And it's amazing, amazing description because you are struck with the power and creativity of God. That God creates the universe simply by speaking it into existence. That all the beauty and intricacy and design that we know of our world comes from his mind and his heart. He just kind of flings the universe into existence with his power and with his creativity. It's amazing. I mean, you're struck by the incredible nature of God. But juxtaposed to that in Genesis 1 and 2 are not just the power and creativity of God, but the intimacy of God. Because in all of God's creating, in all of his universe building, what what you soon come to realize is his favorite thing that he has created are people. There are a lot of ways that Genesis 1 and 2 reinforce this for you. For example, they'll have God saying, let us make man in our image, that the difference between the animals or the plants or the rock formations that God has made and people is it's only people that bear God's image. They're linked to him in a special way. When God makes Adam and Eve, he will metaphorically get his hands 
dirty. Whereas he simply speaks everything else into existence. For Adam, he forms him from the dust of the earth, Eve from the rib of Adam. He he speaks to Adam and Eve, not just telling them to be fruitful and multiply, which he says to birds and fish and other animals, but he, he speaks in detail with them. He shares with them who he is and what he's doing and what their role is in creation. And he gives them a really big role. He creates a garden for them. Every other animal, he just kind of says, look, spread out, you know, cover over the earth. But for Adam and Eve, he makes a particular place, a garden, and he rests them in the garden. And he tells them, hey, your job is to cultivate and keep this garden, to subdue the earth and to have dominion over it. He spends time with them. He communicates with them He loves them. So what you have in Genesis 1 and 2 is this powerful, earth-shaping, earth-creating God who is yet also desiring intimate relationship with his favorite creation, people. And in fact, when God looks over all that he's made, not just nature, but people as well, he looks at everything that he's made and he declares that it is good. He says about people, I'm happy with you. I'm proud of you. I love you. I'm pleased with you. And all of that is really beautiful and really powerful. And it also sets up as a pretty stark contrast to what we read in Genesis 3. In fact, the beginning of Genesis 3, we're introduced to the first evil character known as the serpent. And the serpent shows up with a plan, and that plan is to destroy the good world that God has created. And the weapons that the serpent has for destruction come in the form of questions. He's going to ask some questions about God and about the world that he's made. Now, I want to be clear, these are not honest questions. They're not reflective questions. They're not questions coming out of a heart that seeks truth. Because in the Bible, God always welcomes those kinds of questions. Honest questions, questions of struggle, questions that are genuinely seeking to be heard and to be known and to find understanding, God always welcomes those. No, instead, for the serpent, the questions are a little bit like a Trojan horse, It's not really about the question. It's about the lie contained within the question. And the lie in the question is simply this. The serpent wants to convince Adam and Eve that God cannot be trusted. So when he shows up in the beginning of the passage, he says, did God actually say, now note the cynicism, did God actually say that you couldn't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Now, of course, he knows God did not say that, but he's wanting to introduce criticism and doubt of God, cynicism towards God. And when Eve responds saying, no, actually, God didn't say that. There's only one tree in the middle of the garden that we're not supposed to eat from, because if we eat from that tree, we're going to die. The serpent kind of throws off the veneer of questions and just leads with the lie. He says, that's not true. You're not going to die if you eat from that tree. Here's what's really true. God knows that if you eat from that tree, you are going to be like him. See, what the serpent is saying is that, Eve, here's what you need to understand. God is not who you think he is. He is not kind. He is not loving He is not trustworthy. He is not for you. He doesn't want to bless you. He doesn't want you to flourish. He wants to limit you. 
He's saying to Eve, true flourishing, true prosperity, true joy, true freedom is actually outside of the Garden of Eden, outside of God's commands. In fact, what he's really saying to Eve is simply this. Eve, you don't live in paradise. You live in a prison. God is trying to limit your life. You probably don't need me to say this, but I will anyways. That is a lie that's not only in Genesis 3. It's a lie that lives in my heart and in my mind and in yours. That's a lie that we have all wrestled with throughout human history. It may have begun in Genesis 3, but it has rippled across centuries. This idea that God is not for us. That God is not, lo- does not love us. He does not desire good things for us. He doesn't want to bless us. He wants to curse, to curse us. He, he doesn't want to lead us to good places, but to bad ones. That he doesn't want paradise for us. He wants prison. Now, we very rarely would go around saying that. Hey, I don't think God is kind, and I don't think God is loving, and I think he wants to imprison me. No, instead, you see this lie more when we come in to encounter the commands of God. So as we engage what God has said about money, or career, or family, or culture, or society, or sex, we find ourselves saying things like, that's ridiculous. That will never make me happy. That will limit my freedom. That will limit my self-expression. That will curse me, not bless me. Therefore, if God is trying to restrict me in that way, he must be against me. This is the prevailing cultural idea of our day. That the absolute worst thing you could do is listen to God as it relates to making decisions. That the absolute most foolish thing you could do is to trust God and to do life his way. But that is born out of this lie. God is not for us. God is against us. God wants to limit us. God wants to put us not in paradise, but in prison. That true freedom is found in ignoring God. And not in listening to him. Have you felt this lie? Do you know it? In your head and in your heart. I know you do. Because I do. That is what we struggle with. Perhaps if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is the primary reason you're not a Christian. Because you look at the commands that you know are in the Bible or you think are in the Bible. And you say, oh my goodness, I would be miserable if I lived life that way. And underneath that is this idea that if God wants that for me, he must want me to be miserable. He must not love me. That is the lie the serpent tells, and that is the lie that we have believed. The second thing I want you to see is the damage that that lie causes. Now, to believe any lie eventually causes damage, right? Because the lie separates you from reality, and therefore you find yourself living in a world that is not real. Every lie causes damage. This lie is no different. In fact, as soon as Adam and Eve begin to open up to the idea that this lie is true, you begin to see damage in their life. It's a progression of damage. And the first thing that is damaged is their understanding of God. It changes the way they think about God. How could it not, by the way? If the serpent says, God isn't for you, he's 
against you. He's imprisoned you. God is actually afraid that you would get free and become a rival to him, that you would be God instead of him. Well, if you believe that, then certainly that's going to change the way you think about God. Now, you see this in two ways with Adam and Eve. The first way is the location of the tree that they eat from. Notice that the text says that the tree, that the death tree, if you will, is in the middle of the garden. Now listen, I'm not God, but if I were going to create a paradise, I probably wouldn't put a death tree in the middle of the garden. If for some reason I felt the need to include a death tree, I might put it in a cave, guarded by a dragon, underwater, right? Something like that. It would make it really hard to get to, but God puts it in the middle of the garden. Why? Well, but here's why. Because every day, Adam and Eve walk past that tree. And every day they walk past it without eating from it. They sleep underneath it without eating from it. They climb it without eating from it. They take fruit from the table and make a, or from the tree and make a centerpiece for the table, but they don't eat of it. Every day they do that, what they are saying to God is, I trust you. I trust you, God. You said not to eat from this tree, and I trust you. So what's changing is when Eve looks at the fruit and sees that it looks good, it looks like it would taste good, and she wants to be wise, she is saying, I don't trust God anymore. God is not trustworthy anymore because he lied to me about the tree. And the second way you see it is that when God shows up in the garden, coming to meet them, they hide from him. Now, in Genesis 1 or 2, there is absolutely no reason given why you would ever hide from God. I mean, he's created the universe. He's made you in his image. He's talked to you. He's given you purpose and meaning. He, he loves you. Why would you ever hide from God? But here's what Eve is saying. If he lied about the tree, what else has he lied about? If I can't trust him about what I should eat, if I can't trust his motives, then how can I even trust that he's kind? or that he, he's good to me, or that he loves me. Here comes God, we should hide. Listen, let me let you in on something. It is impossible to believe that God is wrong on money, family, career, or sex, or whatever, fill in the blank, and believe that he simultaneously loves you. This is why, as we culturally throw off the morality that God has told us, as we begin to say to God, we don't want to live life your way because you aren't trustworthy. You will not lead us to have good things, so we don't want to listen to you that we feel incredibly disconnected from God. Because after all, if God would lie to us about money, then how could he ever really love us? If God would lie to us about family, how could he ever really love us? That's what Adam and Eve are doing. That's why they hide. But the next thing that is damaged, not only their understanding of God, but what is also damaged is their understanding of themselves. The Bible says that as soon as they eat from the tree, they recognize that they're naked and they begin to cover themselves up with fig leaves. Now, Genesis 2 tells us that when God made people, he made them naked. They were naked and without shame. That's a really powerful expression. They were naked and without shame. Now, I don't want you to automa automatically think of sexual intimacy there, okay? I think that would be to miss a larger point, okay? So if you're in your 20s, you're a guy, you're thinking, I knew it. I knew that's what the Bible wants for marriage. You just walk around naked all the time. Okay, spoiler alert, that is not how it's going to go, okay? That is not how it's going to be. The phrase naked and without shame 
is not actually about sex. Do you know what it's about? It's about security. Listen, when you think about being naked on display, you don't think of sex, not first. You know what you think of? I know you think of this because it's what I think of. You think, oh my goodness, how terrifying would that be? All my flaws would be on display. To be naked physically, emotionally, intellectually, to be naked is to be exposed. To be naked is for everyone to know who you really are and who you really aren't. So in Genesis 2, when it says they are naked and without shame, what that means is way better than sexual intimacy. Here's what it means. It means they live totally free of any insecurity. Adam and Eve knew who they were. They were made in the image of God. They didn't need anyone else to validate them because God had validated them. God had said, you are good. You are made in my image. This means when Adam looked in the mirror, he didn't see what he wasn't. He saw what God said he was. This means when when Adam looked at Eve, he didn't compare Eve to women on the internet. She was enough for him. This means when Eve looked at Adam, she didn't compare him to guys she went to high school with on Facebook. He was enough for her. No one was insecure. No one was worried they didn't measure up because God had said, you are good. But here's the thing. If God had lied about the tree, maybe God had lied about them being good. You see, if you throw off the authority of God, if you say to God, I'd you are not trustworthy. I don't want to live life your way. The byproduct of that is then everything good that God has ever said about you becomes suspect. So Adam and Eve go from being naked and without shame to being utterly, cripplingly insecure. Now get this, they are naked, that's true, but they're the only human beings who live in the garden. It's just a husband and wife. They've seen each other naked. So I get if they were going to go to Walmart, why they throw on some fig leaves. But if they're staying home, why can't they be naked? But here's the reality. If we begin to believe the lie about God, even in the context of life's most most intimate relationship, and if you're married, you know this, we will be utterly and cripplingly insecure. The third way you see damage in Adam and Eve's lives, they begin to Their view of God is damaged. Their view of themselves is damaged. And then their view of each other is damaged. So they're hiding in the bushes. God comes looking for them. He finds them in the bushes. He says, what's going on? Did you, you know, how do you know that you're naked? What changed? And Adam says, it was Eve. She did it. Now I want you to hear this. Why would he say that? Well, here's why. Here's why. If he's no longer good because God said he was, because God can't be trusted, and if he can't even say himself that he's good, by the way, Adam and Eve make fig leaves for themselves. They try to cover up their insecurity. But as soon as they hear God, what happens? They hide in the bush. Why? Because they know that their fig leaves won't work. By the way, neither will your career or perfect children, or a nice place to go to in the winter. And Adam realizes that the only move he has left is to not be good, but to be better than Eve. So he says to God, I messed up, God, but at least I'm not like her. Adam becomes the first religious person. (laughs) I may not be good, 
but I'm not as bad as her. (laughs) Which is what we do when we become insecure, right? The old adage goes, hurting people hurt people. Listen, do you want to know why our culture is so polarized? Why we can't seem to get along? It's not times have changed. Study history. There have always been opposite sides. Here's why. Because if God cannot be trusted, then we are insecure, and insecure people will always compete with each other to try to grasp whatever goodness is out there to be grasped. Listen, I know people have questions about the book of Genesis, right? I know. What can I believe? What can I, what can I take literally? What can I... How about science and how about, listen, those are good questions. Can I let you in on something? Christians have been asking those questions for 2,000 years. And they're really important questions and there are really great answers. You should ask them, explore them, seek them. But in all your wrestling about nature and creation and science, don't miss this. There has never in the history of human existence been anything written that more accurately understands what is going on in our hearts and minds than Genesis 3. We no longer trust God. And so we're cripplingly insecure and we turn on each other. Listen, if you want to know if the Bible is true, maybe start with, does that sound like you? Does that sound like your family? Does that sound like our culture? Friends, that damage comes from this So I know right now you're like, is there any hope in this sermon? (laughs) I feel it. I feel it. Here's the third point, the promise, the promise. Listen, the first thing I want you to see in Genesis 3 is that God never stops caring about Adam and Eve. He never stops caring about them. In fact, he shows up in the passage walking in the garden in the cool of the day looking for them. He just wants to hang out with them. He just wants to spend time with them because that's who he is. Big, powerful creator God who desires intimacy with his favorite creation, people. And he even asks, where are you? Listen, that question is not meant to be taken literally. Here's a little theological point for you. You cannot play hide and seek with God. Okay, he always knows where you're hiding. He doesn't ask, where are you? Because he doesn't know. He wants them to know and us to know he's looking for them. And even when he finds them and even when he disciplines them for breaking the world, he, he, does, he uh, completes the first sacrifice and kills animals and makes skins for them and covers them. He says to them, fig leaves are never going to do this. Here, let me give you something. And then he sends them out of the garden and places an angel at the edge of the garden because he knows the absolute worst thing that they could ever do is to live forever in their present state. That would literally be hell. Now, God's love is all over this passage, but it's most concretely found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And if you have a Bible, I would love for you to underline this, star it, write in it. Really, I give you permission. I bless you. Go for it. You can do it. Here's what it says. I, this is God speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your 
head and you shall bruise his heel. He says to the serpent, listen, you and the woman are always going to be at odds. And her descendant, one day a descendant, she's going to have a baby who's going to have a baby. There's going to be a lot of babies. And then there's going to be a descendant and that descendant is going to go to war with you and you're going to hurt him, but he's going to crush you. And you say, well, what's that going to look like? Well, what are the weapons of the serpent? The weapon of the serpent is the lie that God is good. And God says one day there's going to be a descendant of Eve who will show up and he will show and expose and destroy that lie. And then you begin to read the Old Testament. And you say, is it Abraham? Is it Isaac? Is it Jacob? Is it Joseph? Is it Moses? Is it Joshua? Is it David? Is it Solomon? Is it Elijah? Is it Elisha? Who is it? And those men do incredible things for God in the Bible, but every one of them at some point believes the lie. They are like us. It isn't until you get to the New Testament and you meet Jesus Christ that you realize the answer to this promise is Jesus. Now, how does Jesus fulfill the promise to crush the serpent's lies? Two ways, two ways. Number one, he goes first. When you read the life of Jesus, what you're going to find is that he always trusts God. Always. He believes that God is trustworthy. He believes that God is good. In fact, when the serpent will come to Jesus in the wilderness and say, if God were good, you wouldn't be hungry. If God were good, everybody would know who you are. If, if God were good, you'd already have the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus will say to him every time, I trust God. He's good. He's loving. He's kind. I trust him. Even the night Jesus is arrested in the garden, he will say, God, is there any other way? But nonetheless, not what I want, but what you want. In other words, I trust you. And in that, in living life that way, what Jesus is saying to us is watch me, watch me. See if you can trust God. I will go first. I will do everything that God says. Watch me, see if God is trustworthy. And when he goes to the cross, we look at him and we point at him and we say, see, this is why I should never trust God. You trust God, you end up homeless, naked, beaten, dying on a cross. This is where trusting God gets you. And he dies. But three days later, he raises from the dead and he says to us, see, I told you, if you trust God, he will always bring you to good things. He wants to bless you, not curse you. He wants you to flourish, not suffer. He wants you to live, not die. I went first. Even when it looks like God is trying to kill you, he's actually loving you. Jesus goes first, but he doesn't just go first. He goes first for us. Because after all, Jesus will say time and time again, he has come to live and die in our place. That Jesus goes to the cross and on the cross, the man who has always and only trusted God becomes the embodiment of all of the mistrust we have had towards God. And God pours out his anger onto Jesus 
And Jesus dies for our mistrust, for the lies we believed about God. And he's buried. And three days later, when he raises from the dead, he says, don't, he says, don't you see? I came to go first so that you might believe that God is trustworthy, so that when I tell you, if you grab hold of me and follow me and trust me, God will take care of you. You would know it's true. Friends, Jesus crushes the serpent by proving that God is good, that God does love you, that God is trustworthy. Because after all, a God who loves you so much he would give his own son isn't out to destroy your financial life. A God who loves you so much that he would give his own son is not trying to, to limit you. He wants to bless you. He wants to, he wants to lead you to not a lesser sexual expression, but a fuller one. Not a worse family dynamic, but a better one. And how do you know that? Because Jesus died for you. Because he proved God to be trustworthy. Listen, the serpent said, the serpent said, this is not paradise, this is a prison. But Jesus said, the day he was dying to a thief on the cross next to him, who said, Jesus, would you remember me when you're in your kingdom? What did Jesus say to him? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Friends, look at me. God has never stopped wanting to live in paradise with you. And he sent his own son to bring you back. Let me pray for us. Father God, I confess how many times I have believed lies about you. Not just before I was a Christian, since. Not just before I was a pastor, since. I'm sure that's true for others in the room. We confess that. We ask forgiveness for that. God, would you show us, not because you owe us, but because you're good, would you show us yet again how trustworthy you are, how good you are, how kind you are, how loving you are, when every fiber of our being and the cultural air we breathe is that you cannot be trusted, would you exalt Jesus to us, Holy Spirit, that we might see that you can, in fact, be trusted, and you've proven it in him. His name we pray, amen.